When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and this week I'm doing something a little bit different. So the show is on hiatus until about mid-January, but I have a special episode from a fellow podcaster that I'll be sharing on the feed today. What you'll be listening today is an episode from the show called The Cynic's Guide to Hippie Shit by Rachel Jones Wild. She is a psychotherapist and mindfulness teacher who explores more alternative therapies or unusual approaches to treatment from a cynical perspective with an open mind. So the next episode or the episode that I'm going to be sharing with you today from her show is about play and talks a lot about trauma-informed yoga. So I hope that you enjoy it. And if you do and want to listen more, I will put the links in the bio to go to her show, check out her social media accounts. And with that, sit back and relax and enjoy this special crossover episode from the Cynic's Guide to Hippie Shit. Hello and welcome to the Cynic's Guide to Hippie Shit. Today I'm chatting with Angie Barrett about movement and play. We talk about one of my favourite topics, which is dinosaurs. Something that we don't talk about as adults anywhere near enough, in my opinion. In fact, um, I just had my baby shower and got a lot of dinosaur-related gifts, many of which I'm going to be keeping for myself. In this episode, I want to say something about trigger warnings. I'm generally quite uncomfortable with the idea of trigger warnings because we're all so different and we can never really know what people will find triggering. So in general, I don't do a trigger warning, but let listeners take responsibility for what feels right. And I hope that you know that you can turn off at any time. However, today's episode does reference trauma and abuse. So if you know that this is a difficult topic, then this might not be the episode for you. And now for the Cynic's Guide to Play. So, hello and welcome to the Cynic's Guide to Hippie Shit. So I'm here with Angie and we're going to be talking about play and movement and yeah, tell me more. Tell, well, tell, tell me a bit more about yourself. And Okay. Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Angie Barrett and my pronouns are she or they. And I grew up as a child abuse survivor. Um, I had no memory of it until about seven years ago when things really hit rock bottom for me. Um, so I grew up, I had this horrific child abuse. I ended up getting married. I went through an abusive marriage. Um, I became a registered nurse. That actually is my profession. So I'm a registered nurse by training. And my marriage ended up, um, I ended up getting divorced and 
I still was working as a nurse and it just was, I was really having a hard time. I always felt this pain inside of me that I never really understood. And then about seven years ago, um, some things happened in my life and I started having memories of my child abuse come out. Mm -hmm. And so um, I kind of went down this really dark hole, um, really dark. And I ended up checking myself into an inpatient psychiatric hospital because I was worried that I was going to hurt myself. Um, I was abusing alcohol. I was struggling with depression. And once I spent a month in the hospital and it was a fantastic unit for PTSD and for trauma. And so they really started to help me understand what happens in our bodies with trauma. And then I started, when I got out, I started a really intensive regimen of outpatient therapy and, and various different modalities. And I found, so I have practiced yoga for years. I've always been a yoga practitioner and yoga had always been a place where I could kind of really tap into my body and what it was telling me. And it was interesting that as I was on my journey to heal, yoga actually became too much for me. I couldn't do it anymore. It yep. was too structured. It was too regimented. Um, and it became very uncomfortable. And it's interesting. I actually took a certification to become a trauma in, or to become a yoga instructor. I could teach it. I just couldn't be a student. Um, I needed to take a break from nursing. Nursing was very challenging. And so I did get my yoga instructor certification. And then when COVID hit, I, um, <laughs> that definitely impacted the yoga community mm -hmm. and I wasn't a hundred percent certain. In fact, I was 90% certain I did not want to go back into patient care. It was already really traumatizing for me. My background is in emergency medicine. So working oh, wow. during the pandemic, I was a little concerned was going to be a little more traumatizing for me. Um, so I decided to take a certification in how to become a trauma-informed yoga instructor. Being a trauma survivor, I got really interested to learn, was there a way to use yoga and movement to help people heal? Amazing. And yeah, it was, it's phenomenal. So trauma-informed yoga, I think I teach my traditional yoga classes as trauma-informed because I think everybody I, yes, yes. I'm so with you on that one because I, I, I teach mindfulness and I do some trauma-informed mindfulness and, and I'm so very much of the belief that it should all be trauma-informed because you don't know who's in the room. Mm -hmm. You don't know what people have been through and you know people shouldn't have to feel like they need to tell you so we should just generally assume that everyone's traumatized if you've got a room with more than half a dozen people in you're gonna have trauma in the room i think if you have a room with one person in it, <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I just think that that coming at it from an approach where there is more openness and more space to to have whatever experience you want. And I love traditional yoga. There are things I really love about traditional yoga and it's very structured. And so having someone who um, it, it, anyway, so I wanted to become trauma informed. I love so I teach even I teach one yoga traditional yoga class still and I teach from a trauma informed lens. But what was really interesting is a couple of things happened at the same time. So as I was doing my trauma-informed yoga training, we learned a lot about how to regulate the nervous system, how movement actually regulates going into fight or flight or freeze or rest and digest. And so how movement can actually get us into those parts of our nervous system as well as get us out. 
And one of the things that we talked a lot about was how beneficial play is in helping tap into the part of our nervous system um, that actually settles us down. And I'm touching my chest for those of you that can't see if you're not watching the video, because the nerves that that um, that control that are here in our chest. And so for me, it's one of the soothing movements when I want to tap into that to actually touch my chest. So for those of you watching, that's why I'm touching my chest. And if you're listening, that's where the nerves sit. I only do audio. So everyone will be just listening from. from okay. <laughs> Fantastic. So anyway, it's on your chest. Uh, the nerves are in our chest and in our neck and our face. So I was learning how beneficial play is in tapping into parts of the nervous system. And then at the same time, I was doing a protocol with my therapist that's designed to help children who've experienced or people who've experienced trauma as a young child. Um, so when we experience trauma as a young child, our brains are formed under those traumatic circumstances. And so they're born pretty much marinated in our fight or flight hormones. So think of it as being marinated in that huge stress response all the time. And so we were working and I learned that um, as humans, all mammals, um, we're born with our brains pre-wired with seven circuits. And so we come out knowing seven things, seven pre-wired things in our brain and play is one of those and so think of how children learn they learn with play they learn with that's how they learn to navigate their world and so as adults we still have that wiring that circuitry in our brain for play but we don't really use it as adults mm -hmm. you know when's the last time you just did something for the pure joy an imagination of pretending to be a dinosaur or whatever it is that you did <laughs> when you were a kid and so I started combining some of these play movements. I would, um, I actually pretended like I was a child and went back to pretending that I was a dinosaur or I used a lot of animal um, imagery. And it was so amazing as I started doing that, I started releasing this buildup tension, this trauma that I had from years and years of child abuse, well, and, and my marriage. Um, and I was able to tolerate therapy so much easier. It was just this huge relief, this weight off of me that I was able to release with play and movement. So I told a couple of my friends about it and they wanted to try it because, I mean, who doesn't want to try to release trauma without having to do something heavy and painful and have it be fun and play? So I told some friends of mine about it and um, who had not experienced the level of trauma that I did as a child. And once again, I think everybody in this world has trauma. We all have our own variations of it. Um, and it worked for them. They had this huge relief. They noticed that they were feeling better. And so I started really fine tuning it and working with clients. And so now that's the, the majority of what I do is I work teaching people how to play, to tap into what their body's trying to tell them. Play gives us an opportunity to step out of our human experience, um, to experience sensations in our bodies that feel safer in a way. For most of us humans and adults, we don't feel comfortable or feel safe having emotions. Um, we're in fact taught not to. That's how we multitask. That's how we get all these things done. Um, that's how we learn to survive. Stress mm -hmm. is uncomfortable. Fight or flight is uncomfortable. Anxiety, depression, all those things. 
So we step out of our bodies and using play gives us an opportunity to feel those sensations, especially playful movement, to feel those sensations, but to feel in control of them without all the, the narrative that comes from the mind telling us, oh, you know, whatever our stories are that we tell us. So that's me. <laughs> Fabulous. There's so many different directions, but I want to kind of come down to this whole cynicism thing. Yes. So I've talked to lots of people who practice lots of different um what I call hippie shit. Yes. And that, mm-hmm. that could be, you know, your your more woo-woo stuff like your Reikis and your astrology and things like that, down to things that actually really shouldn't be seen as hippie shit, really shouldn't be seen as remotely out there, but actually kind of are. And I would say that this is what we're talking about today. You know, absolutely. why on earth would people be cynical about play? And yet they are, they would be. And there's going to be a part of me that I imagine if I was in a room doing something playful, there'd be part of me going, oh, what are you doing? Yeah. Like crazy lady, what are you asking me to do? Yeah. And I get that a lot. In fact, I find that people dismiss play as me. Um, well, so I'm going to back up. There is some hippy dippy shit in that I do with the work that I do and talking good, and, good. and I do work. So a lot of the moves that I have created actually work around releasing energy in the chakras. I just don't always necessarily talk to people about that. Woo, being, woo, woo. Woo, woo. Yeah. So there is shit. <laughs> and I can back it up with the scientific research that shows that play really is beneficial in doing that. And yet people are still resistant. Play is something that kids do. Play is something that we do when we're little, we outgrow it. And yet it's it's wired in our brain in our bodies in our systems it really does there really is some heal i call it our superpowers it, there really is an element of it being our superpowers and i wonder whether there's a, an element that people feel almost like because play doesn't seem serious mm-hmm. and trauma is serious it's trivializing in some way if if you're asking people to play is that is that something that that you've experienced it is absolutely and even people um yes it it, people do have that perception also that in healing trauma or even releasing stress life's supposed to be hard you know we're not supposed to have fun as we're doing trauma work or therapy like that's not supposed to be fun and yet that's why I created what I did is because I was tired of how heavy it was. Life doesn't have to be that heavy. It can be fun. It can be playful. So, yeah. So what do you actually do when you're working with people? Yeah. So it really depends on the client. Um, I do offer group coaching. So um, in my group coaching, I pick a theme for the week. um, And they're usually themes that that I hear often expressed with um, clients when I do one-on-one work or based on my own experience, like, this last week's was um, learning how to make fear your friend because fear is very uncomfortable and yet fear can also motivate us. Um, so we'll, and then I'll do a movement practice around that, learning how to um, to work with the sensations of fear, but in a way that feels empowering rather than, than debilitating. Mm-hmm. When I work with clients one-on-one, um, we can do traditional uh, or trauma-informed yoga. Um, so some people like to do that. And some of my clients 
so I've created this proprietary way of, of using play and movement. So I've created my own movements. And so when clients want to work with me in that way, typically what we'll do is we'll work to find a negative belief that they carry about themselves. And we all have those negative beliefs that we have. Oh, so yes. for example, some of mine are, I have no value or I'm not worthy. And um, then we'll work to find movements that um, I've started out with helping clients find movements that settle their nervous system. And so when, and one of my favorite ones, and we'll talk, I can explain it here, is just even a side-to-side -side sway. And so just a side-to-side -side sway, and then we'll explore side-to-side -side versus front-to-back. And as you do that, exploring what happens in your body. So for me, side to side, my shoulders start to drop, my belly starts to unclench. I notice maybe if my toes are gripping, my feet start to relax. So I cue people through starting to tune into their body and then now explore going front to back. What happens when you rock front to back? So for me, my shoulders start to tense up. I start to get that gripping in my belly. My toes start to clench. But for some people, the front to back is more comfortable. And so side to side makes them more uncomfortable. So we explore what's your body trying to tell you. And then we go through, once we find some moves that help settle, settle down um, a person's nervous system, like put them into more of a relaxed state, we start to do movements and tapping into the energy or the emotion surrounding these negative beliefs. So we'll do movements. One of my favorite ones that I like to do, I call octopus on roller skates. So it's pretend <laughs> that you're an octopus. You have eight arms and legs. And each limb has no bones with shoes with wheels on it. How would your body move? And so it's letting your body be just this wiggly, like fun, playful, um, and imagining that you're just an octopus on roller skates. What would your body look like? And so then exploring what does that feel like in your nervous system? So that increases people's heart rate, that increases people's breathing. Maybe it feels uncomfortable. And so exploring what does that feel like with those, and yet they're still in control. They're not experiencing the human experience that, you know, we're pretending to be an octopus on roller skates. And then it's learning how to go, how to shift back and forth between moves that tap into that activation versus relaxation and teaching people that they have a little more or helping people learn that they have more control over when they start to feel agitated versus what do they do to help settle down. And so we go through that. And typically I do it around one of the negative beliefs that they carry, although that can be a lot and not everybody wants to always tap into that every time. So how can being an octopus on roller skates help you to tap into negative beliefs? So it very good. That question. was a bit weird. <laughs> I, I know. It, okay. Good question. Yes. It, it does it in a couple ways. First of all, it teaches um, people what it feels like when they go into fight or flight. So um, our bodies, when we go into fight or flight are releasing um, adrenaline, it's getting us ready to run or to fight whatever our perceived threat is. So when we do a movement like octopus on roller skates, one that um, oftentimes triggers fear in people, fear of looking silly, feel a fear of not doing it correctly. And so that can start to help to tap into that, that sense of fear, but doing it in a way that is playful. Um, it helps I mean, it increases people's heart rate because you're moving all wild and wiggly. And so it's going to have the same physiologic response, like the, um, the increased heart rate, the increased breathing, the feeling of that. 
And then oftentimes I'll invite a client to think of what would be the positive, like if it, it, the opposite of your negative belief about yourself. So for me, mine is I'm not worthy. So I would then say, okay, I'm worthy. And as I'm doing this octopus on roller skates, saying that I'm worthy gives that, that energy, that negative shit around that, that belief, a chance to get to, to release out. Um, and then to kind of let go. And then when people are done, they feel kind of a sense of, they often feel a sense of this weight has been lifted because they're not carrying so much negative energy with them as they do that. Now I am going to make a little caveat here. I do not recommend doing that on your own without someone there who knows how to pull you out. If you go too far into getting triggered, I did that to myself when I first started learning how to do this and I had to call my therapist to pull me out. So until you learn how to regulate your nervous system, I do not recommend doing that without someone there who can pull you out if you go too far into that, that negative belief because you can get trapped in that. So that's why I do work with clients one-on-one. -on -one. I don't do that with people unless I'm working one-on-one because -on -one I'm really paying close attention to people because it is very easy to get trapped into those negative beliefs and not be able to come out. I've done it. It's interesting, isn't it? This idea of like like danger and safety and and fear and and often those negative beliefs feel safer. They do. Yeah. I mean, they're not good, and they they have. But when we just dis decided, in air quotes, when we decided to have those beliefs, they were a good decision at the time. They were a protective mechanism for exactly. us for whatever reason. Yeah. So actually, to start to kind of say the opposite. Oh, that's scary. Very uncomfortable. Notice your, even just like your body language, like starts to yeah, lean back and you start to think about that. Yeah. And so doing some sort of playful movement is a way to release some of that resistance. You know, it's, it's hard at first, but it is a way to kind of let go of some of that resistance. So it becomes easier to sit in, um, in the belief that or even just in a space that maybe the belief that the positive could be true becomes easier to sit in. I have to ask you a question. Yes. Because it's been, it's, it's ever since you mentioned the word dinosaur. Yes. What's your favorite dinosaur? T-Rex. Oh, go on. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Because T-Rex is big. It is top of the dinosaur food chain it does not give a shit it roars as loud as it wants um that's actually one of my favorite moves is to pretend like i'm a t-rex and like you stomp around you make a big roar uh, t-rex is my favorite mm -hmm. triceratops mm. good one yeah why is it because um it's a vegetarian uh, but okay. it could hold its own in a fight Mm -hmm. so it's like yeah don't mess with me but I'm not gonna start it <laughs> but I am gonna finish it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what I would do if I were working with a client whose favorite dinosaur was a triceratops I would say be a triceratops so how would you um yeah walk around <laughs> like a triceratops and notice how as you do that how your your feelings about yourself change like you start to even just Rachel watching you your shoulders shifted you change like your whole demeanor changed and so it's that that pretending to be something else taking on those characteristics of whatever it is and then having that be in our human experience when we come back to the human experience. 
I saw this um, meme on Facebook a few years ago, and it was something along the lines of the worst thing about being an adult is that nobody asks you what your favorite dinosaur is anymore. <laughs> and it just really struck me. And I've been slightly obsessed with dinosaurs ever since because it's so true. Like those, those questions that we're asked as children, you know, and those things that we get excited about as children, that kind of like, you know, when you go through your phase of being really obsessed with space and, the yeah. plants, and then you have your dinosaur phase and all of those things and like, you know, what superpower would you have? What kind of superhero would you like to be? All of those questions that really get your imagination going, and that playfulness. And what do we do? We think about our mortgage. Mm-hmm. That's boring. Money, inflation. Yeah. And and so a lot of what, what has helped me personally to heal is to go back to that childlike wonder and to play and to be a dinosaur. I, so I love that. No, we don't ask other grownups what your favorite dinosaur is. So I love that you asked me that a hundred percent. I ask people all the time and the looks on their faces is sometimes quite like, really? Why? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, but we should know. Yeah. Just because we're grown up doesn't mean we don't still have that wiring in our brain that wants to play. We just ignore it. We separate from it. Yeah. Is that question about what's important? Mm-hmm. I think we we've lost sight of what what is important. Yeah. And getting in touch with ourselves, I think, is so important. And we don't do that. We don't allow ourselves the opportunity to to feel. And like you said, a lot of times those negative um, beliefs about ourselves are more comfortable. So starting to tap into the positives or even to have play and have fun can be uncomfortable because it's so against the norm. It's so against what everything we've been taught. So it is very challenging. So let's track back because you've talked about um, so many things. Um, trauma-informed yoga. I mean, I, I understand what trauma-informed mindfulness is because that's one of the things that I do. What would trauma-informed yoga look like? So traditional yoga tends to be very structured, um, tends to... Um, depending now granted depending on which type you're practicing there's lots of variations lots of I understand that and a lot of times traditional yoga at least the way that I was taught is you have very specific alignment you have very specific ways that people um you encourage people to get their bodies into um there's not always as much room for variation um and a lot of times movement is linked with the breath there's not really much um poses are done just without, I mean, just because they're the yoga poses. So trauma-informed yoga provides, first of all, more space for people to do a pose or not do a pose. Certain poses, a common one is child's pose, which is where you lay on your knees, arms reach out in front of you, um, kind of folded over your knees. And yet that can be a very vulnerable position because your back is exposed. And so it would be trauma-informed yoga would be offering options and making it normal that if you don't want to go into child's pose today, here are some variations to try. Um, it's using different languaging. So instead of saying things like modifications that make people feel like they're doing something wrong, that they have to be modified for it's variations, just your body doesn't want to do it today. Um, depending on which um, population you're teaching to. Now, if you're teaching a general trauma-informed class, understanding certain poses are going to trigger different survivors. Um, 
offering options for breathing or not following the breath. I'm one of those people that really gets triggered by audible um, breathing from other mm -hmm. people. So when we do breath work and I have to listen to other people, I get really triggered by that. And so doing breath work, I have to be able to move or I get triggered. And so it's providing opportunities for things like that, knowing that even simple things like moving with the breath might be very challenging for someone. Um, alignment is not as as strictly focused on. In fact, it's more the way I teach it, I'll say, we'll come to a pose and I'll say, now shift your hips around and you know, explore and play. Can you find a different way to find more engagement to instead of holding traditional warrior two, maybe try adjusting your legs a little bit or, you know, and so exploring where can you feel more comfortable, more stable and more secure as you do the yoga poses and giving permission to not do it. Um, do you want to just lay curled in the fetal position the entire time? Laying curled in the fetal position the entire time. So it's it's providing more space for people to, to explore rather than the traditional structured flow of a class. I'm vinyasa yoga trained. And so that's that's the style that, that I teach, which is moving with the breath. And so posture to posture to posture. It does really sound like all yoga should be like that though. We should have that sense of permission and invitational language and that sense that actually the most important thing is listening to your own body. It is. <laughs> and I, I, I've done, like I said, I've done traditional yoga for years. And even now, if I go to a traditional yoga class, I still will shift or wiggle and, and find where my body wants to be today because it changes yeah. even from, from minute to minute, it changes as to what our body wants to do. And so I agree. And that's also not necessarily the way that it's been done for 5,000 years. So it is somewhat breaking with the tradition of yoga. Yeah. And you've talked about triggering a couple of times. And I think I find the whole area of triggering really interesting. I suppose mm -hmm. there's a few things. One is that you don't know what's going to trigger anyone at any one time. And and that whole area around trig like trigger warnings and things like that. Like, how do we navigate the certain areas where we think, well, that's, yeah, probably there's a high chance that that could be triggering. And then there's also that knowledge of, actually, we have absolutely no idea. How How do we navigate that, do you think? Um, very carefully. <laughs> um, yeah. It's very, it's very challenging. And I think it's also understanding that we're not going to be able to not trigger every single person, you, you know, it's, it's going to happen. And so it's more, I think, creating a safe space that if someone does get triggered, allowing them that opportunity to experience that and helping them feel safe coming back and, and helping provide opportunities for it's okay if you get triggered to to not do what I'm telling you to do or if you know that that might potentially be a pose that's that's challenging you know don't do it skip it feel free and then for certain populations like certain you know women sexual abuse survivors I would never suggest certain poses that would put them in positions that might feel triggering or um like Laying on your back is triggering for a lot of people who are who are um, trauma survivors. And so offering options where they don't have to lay fully down or skipping it. I think it's just creating a safe space for people to 
explore it however they want. And then if they do get triggered, then providing as much support as possible. Some of it is also just even in the languaging that we use. So one of the big things that I learned in trauma-informed yoga is even a statement like, hey guys, which is common. I mean, how often do we say, hey guys, it's part of our, the way that we, you know, address people, but that can be very triggering to people who don't identify as male, who aren't male, who have had bad experiences with male so, males. And so instead of, hey guys, you know, hey folks or people, friends, you know, finding other words that maybe are more inclusive. And like I mentioned earlier, instead of using the term like modifications, which implies there's something wrong, variations, because then mm -hmm. it's just a normal, you get to experience it however you want. And so I think it's creating that safe space or container for people to feel as comfortable as they can, knowing that it's not going to happen 100% of the time. Yeah. So knowing that we're not going to get it right. Yeah. And, and learning how to be okay with that. And then working to say, okay, you know, afterwards, in fact, I had a, um, I had a client that got very triggered one time in a yoga class and, and ended up in the fetal position crying. And so after the class, I went up to them and said, okay, you know, you, you know, how are you? you made sure they were okay. And then asked for feedback. What was it? Was there something I could have done differently? And, and, and then taking that to heart and then adding that vernacular into my teaching to create that as, as a space going forward. There's a real courage and humility in that, isn't there? There is. It, it, it can be very hard when one, getting feedback that, that we hurt someone's feelings. I think for many of us that are in the healing world, we don't, we, we never, most of us don't want to cause harm to people. And so that can be very hard to hear that we did. And asking for feedback can be very challenging. And approaching it from a position of humility, like how can I do better rather than what did I do to make you hurt? There's a difference in the way that we have to approach it as well. And at the same time, I think one of the things that I find really important with trauma-informed work or just, just with working with people who are traumatized to kind of go, well, everyone has the right to access this mm -hmm. stuff and to kind of go, oh, we need, it's, it's finding that balance, isn't it? Where at the same we're being trauma-informed, but we're not tiptoeing and patronizing and going, oh, you can't do that, to be able to kind of hold all of that at once. Yeah, uh, agreed. And, and and I keep saying this, but it comes back to creating that space for people to choose what they want to do and what they don't want to do and yeah. give them, it's also empowering for trauma survivors to be able to make a choice. And even something simple, like I want to do breath work or I don't want to do breath work can be a choice that somebody didn't have that they could make when they were at a, you know, at a different place in their, their life or at a different time. And so, yeah, I think it's creating that space where people get to choose so that they don't feel like we're patronizing. I agree that there is a fine line between that. Let's, let's track back to chakras because, yeah. you know, let, let's face it. There's, there's this hippie shit element of what, what I want to be talking about. And I love it. What what do chakras have to do with all of this? Very good question. <laughs> it, when, in trauma, our bodies are actually creating energy. It, our fight or flight, so our body's actually producing adrenaline, epi, like fight or flight hormones. So we get this swirling tornado of energy that, that as humans, we stuff down. Mm -hmm. And so as we stuff that down, because we don't want to feel it, it actually starts to impact our chakras. So... It's most common that people go by, we have seven chakras in our bodies. 
And so even things like not feeling our emotions, um, stuffing our emotions down impacts our sacral chakra, which is our second chakra, our pelvis area. And so that can a lot of times lead to um, low back pain, some GI issues, lots of uh, people who have SI joint, sacroiliac joint immobility or dysfunction. A lot of that can be related to trauma that we're storing in that sacral chakra. And interestingly enough, so the sacral chakra, which is the pelvis, is closely related with our throat chakra. Um, There's a connection between physically when our pelvis is out, our jaw is what often compensates for it. And so chakra wise, when we have to stuff our feelings down, a lot of times we don't voice our, um, our emotions or what we're thinking or we're feeling. So we're stuffing our chakras down. So doing things like a T-Rex roar, like actually making a T-Rex roar is working to open up that throat chakra to allow people that ability to release whatever is stored in their throat chakra, Um, as well as releasing, like tapping into the energy of the pelvic chakra as you're stomping around like a T-Rex, and then you make a roar, you're tapping into both of those chakras. Um, I do moves that will open up the heart chakra. So helping people to open up and find love for themselves taps into the heart chakra because most of the time we don't carry love for ourselves. So if we can't love ourselves, we feel a blockage. Um, A lot of people carry stress in their shoulders, their chest, their upper backs. That would be some of the throat chakra and some of the heart chakra. A lot of people, we carry tension in our um, our gut. Most of us, when we get stressed, you know, you feel that mm-hmm. knot in your right in the gut, your belly, your solar plexus, which is your um, solar plexus chakra or your Manipura chakra, which is right there in the center of your belly. And so doing moves that help people to feel empowered. To, so once again, I'm going to come back to the T-Rex, finding that T-Rex or the triceratops that I'm powerful, taps into the the solar plexus chakra. And so starts to release some of that that blocked energy that we're actually holding in those chakras. That makes loads of sense, surprisingly. And I suppose (laughs) it's that kind of different language for talking about, like, we can can often be talking about the same things using different language. I mean, I would never use the language of chakras. And yet I understand what you're talking about. Yeah. And I was also thinking about, you know, this this idea of the the raw. I yes. like this idea. Um, and I know what I'm like when I do, particularly if I go to groups. I I I am probably better at leading groups than I am at attending groups. So I kind of <laughs> get that as well. But this kind of um this cynicism thing that I'm exploring personally, there's this kind of part of me really wants to be wholehearted and throw myself in and go, yeah. I'm a dinosaur and the part of me is it's almost like an out-of-body experience where I'm looking at myself going what the fuck are you doing (laughs) (laughs) and it's like how you how do I quieten that voice and let myself just be a triceratops or what do I do with that part of me that is cynical and doesn't want to do it that is a very good question because I think that we we all have multiple parts that are like competing for control of us at one time. And so what works for me and what I invite my clients to do is to actually say to that cynical part, you know what? Thank you. You're right. We do feel silly. Yep. Uh-huh. 100%. I know you're trying to protect us. And thank you. Thank you. And 
can you let us pretend like maybe we don't go 100% into it this first time. Maybe we just go into it 50% to be a triceratops and, and grow. And then as we get more comfortable with doing it one time, maybe do it a second time and then maybe do it a third time. And that cynical voice, it's still going to be there. It's its part of that making friends with the fear that I was talking about was one of the themes in my class is, is making friends with that. It's going to be there, but saying, thank you. You're trying to protect me. I get it. Yep. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's only go a little percent at the first and then notice how that feels. And then we'll go into it a little bit more and then we'll go into it a little bit more. And that cynical voice starts to quiet down, um, doesn't always go away, but it starts to quiet down the more and more you practice it mm -hmm. and just knowing it's going to be there a hundred percent. It's going to be there and not trying to, to shove it away because the more we shove it away, the more we're not going to be able to tap into that. So instead of maybe like full roar at the first time, maybe it's just a little roar mm -hmm. and then maybe your roar is a little bit louder the next time. And then maybe it's a little bit louder. And so it's taking it in those increments to balance the desire for play, as well as the desire to protect and be like, fuck, no, I'm not doing that. Do you think there's any value in cynicism? A hundred percent. Yep, I do. I think that um, it, for many of us, has been protective for such a long time. Like that's how we protected ourselves. I think that cynicism is important because it makes us step back and question, is this like, is this really what I want? And I think that it also can hold us back from things. So it's learning how to to work with that cynicism saying, yes, please keep protecting me, help me keep questioning. And maybe can we step back a little bit and try this and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, totally fine. We won't keep doing it. it. So I think it's a protective mechanism. I think that when we do have that cynicism and that questioning and that, ah, I don't think so, we're more likely to really find what it is that we believe in here inside of us versus what are people telling us and what have we been pre-programmed programmed to believe. And I think there's also, for me, an element of identity in there as well, because, you know, I'm British, English, Northern, and all of those kind of identities have an element of being a little bit cynical and being a little bit kind of, you know, there's, there's some class in there as well. And to kind of totally embrace the hippie would, would be quite challenging from my background, I think. So... I wonder whether that's anything that, that you can understand or relate to and what 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 culturally for you, how that relates to um, the work that you do. Yeah, I so I grew up um, very religious in a very religious um, Christian household. And we were taught not to question anything. Cynicism was not accepted, not allowed. There were very strict rules dictating what was done, like even what questioning was allowed. And so as I started on my journey to heal, I did have to heal from that religious trauma. It was very traumatizing for me because I am a bit more of a hippie dippy type of person. I am a free spirit. And I, for me, I learned having to overcome all those cultural upbringings because it was very much a culture that this, this fundamental Christian religion that my family um, is involved in 
was very challenging to overcome because, well, in fact, well, my abuse actually even happened at church. And so it was even more um, solidified not to question and to be cynical and just to accept what happened. So by starting to peel that apart, it actually felt very unsafe because I did have to leave my community um, that did create divisions with my family. And yet, as I became more cynical of of my upbringing in general, and then started into the more hippy-dippy chakra energy type world, I actually found my sense of peace, like my internal compass, rather than what I had been programmed to believe growing up. And so the cynicism was very important for me to start to question, to even break away from Um, from my husband who was abusive and then even to break away from the religion in order to get to a point where I could start to even heal my child abuse and so I even still find now that 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 comes up for me and I've done so much work that I can say to that cynical part okay yep I hear you let's maybe investigate this is this something that we truly believe internally in our soul or is this something that has been taught to us and that's just something that we're questioning because it's it's something that is in our brain that we've been told we should be doing or should be believing or should be whatever versus what do I really believe inside. So it sounds like for you, cynicism is really important. Very important. Yeah, I think it, it, it helps us. Um, so in my experience, it's helped me to to really believe or to really learn what it is that I believe versus what society and everyone around me is telling me. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's having cynicism that helps us to break away from just doctrine. Yes. And dogma. And then there's also that kind of, and what I often see when people are a little bit more hippie (laughs) and the bit that worries me is when people believe in everything. Yes. And then it's like, okay, where's the discernment? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think cynicism is really important to help us to kind of go, okay, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to see what feels right. I might do a little bit of research and to try and be grounded in it. I think being grounded is so important. And it's something that I see people being off, off in kind of in the clouds, having a lovely old time, but it doesn't seem safe. No. No, I agree. I think I think cynicism is important for helping us learn how to listen to our own intuition rather than to get swept along by whatever comes comes along. And so that's why I don't ever tell anybody to ignore your cynicism part. It's working with it because I think that that's a valuable I think that's a valuable part of us trying to determine what's safe for us versus what's what's not. And just that always feel good, like getting swept in the clouds, that also is not reality. You know, reality is life can be hard. Life can be challenging. Life can have a lot of things that are thrown at you. And so it's finding that balance between self-protection as well as allowing yourself to explore and break free from stuff that, that, um, I keep coming back to has been pre-programmed into our brain, but that's what that's what what we get growing up with whatever life experiences we've had. We all have some pre-programming for um, culture. You know, you were saying that you're British, you're Northern British, all that kind of stuff. Like that's part of what is programmed into us as we grow up. 
whatever our circumstances were. So for the listeners, what would you what would you like to be a kind of take home bit of um, top tip feedback kind of what what can somebody take away from today in terms of something that they can do to maybe to get in touch with themselves a little bit more? I'm going to come back to the side to side sway or the front to back rock, just exploring. Um, is there a movement that helps you find something that helps you relax? So in those times of stress, mm. um, thinking of how do we settle babies down? Um, you know, we rock them, we kind of bounce them. We still have that wiring in our brains. And so by starting to do something simple, even like a side to side or a front to back sway is a way to start to get in touch with your body. And life does not have to be entirely heavy and painful as adults. We can have fun. We can find ways of finding joy. And that starts with simple movements, learning how to touch and get, get in touch with your bodies. And isn't that interesting? Because how often do people, do we want to make those kind of movements and think, can't do that. People will think I'm mad because we associate what essentially is self-soothing. It is, yeah. But but we've had that conditioned out of us. Mm-hmm. So to give, and actually what, what I found myself thinking as you were talking, I was thinking, I want to go, I want to go to the park and go on the swings. Yeah, I, absolutely. I say go to the park and go on the swings. Yeah. Yeah. And like, but we don't let ourselves do those kind of things because it might look a bit weird. Mm-hmm. I will 100% tell all of you, I do that when I'm at work. Uh, I work part-time as a nurse right now. And when I get stressed, my body just automatically starts to sway. And people maybe look at me funny. Nobody's really asked me about it, but it just is a side-to-side sway. And I've noticed that other people just automatically, their bodies start doing it as well. And they don't even realize it. It's because it is something that is so soothing to us that... um, that their bodies just start doing it naturally as well without even consciously realizing it. So something simple like that, people are not going to really think that you are, well, if they do, that's on them. But for the most part, most people won't even notice that you probably are. In fact, they may might even start mimicking without realizing it. It's interesting. I think a lot of what we're talking about is, is, isn't learning anything new. It's unlearning. It a hundred percent. It's unlearning. That's a great way to put it. Yep. And what a shame that, maybe it was me maybe it, but you know, what a shame that my first thought was oh people might think that's weird that's everybody's first thought that that's that was my first thought as I started doing this I didn't want to tell people about it because it is weird it is weird and yet it's it's innate in us it's born in us that's how we're wired that's how we come out as babies and actually weird is okay we're I love being weird I'm all about it <laughs> excellent so is there anything else that you'd like to share before we start to wrap up if if you're curious as to what i mean by playful movements i do have a lot of examples um i post a lot of videos on instagram with examples of things to do because it's hard to come up with your own ideas of play especially if that's not something that you've done so feel free to follow me on instagram um the best way to get a hold of me is my website angiebarrettmovement.com and i spell my last name b-e-r-r-e-t-t and um you can get to all my social medias i have a free five minute sequence that you can do if you feel like you're about to lose your shit and are going to lose your cool um 
and yeah, uh, follow because it gives examples for play. If that's not something that is natural for you, which it's not. So I'll make sure all of that is in the show notes and people can awesome. just click on links and things. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As always, like, rate, subscribe, and generally spread the word. I'm off to be a Triceratops. Bye.